Acts chapter 2, verses 24 to 27. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. The word of the Lord. Somewhere, I have fat fingers. It's one part of my body that's not started to get skinny. They're still a little fat. Not that I'm skinny, I'm getting there. But in that, in typing things out and writing them, sometimes those fat fingers get in the way. And that's supposed to be Acts 2, 42, not 24. So 42, not 24. So I'm going to read the passage that I'm going to preach on right now for you. It's Acts 2, starting in verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord as well. Thanks be to God. You know, we've been on a series about the church and what the church is. And I want you to know that when we talk about our gathering, when we talk about what is happening here in particular in Fremantle, but as we talk about the church at large, universal, the things that are happening within the world, the church is an important thing for us to understand. What it actually is and what it means. John Stott, who is a great theologian and pastor, put it this way. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community for His purpose, conceived in the past eternity being worked out in history, and to be perfected in the future eternity. It's not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. It's an important thing that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. The first thing that we talked about is that the church is the people of God. 
that we were people without mercy, but now we have mercy, that we were people who didn't have a God, but now we have a God. And that we are his priests and his nations as his people that go out and let folks know about who he is. Last week, we talked about that we are Christ's body, that that is what the church is, and that there is no one who is insignificant and there is no one who is more important, that God has equipped us and brought us together to do his work, and he's given each one of us specific gifts and tasks to do it. And that's all empowered by the Holy Spirit. And today, we're talking about a devoted fellowship. Now, I have to be honest. We could have talked about the devoted fellowship two weeks ago. We could have talked about it this week or last week. But this is the week that we're talking about it because it is the day of Pentecost. It's the day that we celebrate the day of Pentecost. And this, actually, this description of what the church is, is a devoted fellowship, follows on the heels of the day of Pentecost. And so we have to kind of step back into the day of Pentecost to get our background, to get our understanding of what's going on. So what has just taken place is Christ has ascended into heaven. He has given a charge to the apostles. They have sit around and waited for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And then it does. And the room shakes and it looks like fires on top of their heads. And they stand up and they begin to proclaim who Christ is is what he has done and all the people who are gathered together in Jerusalem all those from all sorts of different nations hear this proclamation of who Jesus is in their own tongue they're able to hear and to understand and actually the passage that we read from is from Peter's sermon at Pentecost and after he preaches this sermon they say to themselves what must we do <laughs> Peter what must we do to be saved and he says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then it says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, save yourself from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and there was added to that day about 3,000 souls. So here Peter proclaims who Jesus is. He proclaims what God has done. And they know that they must change. They must turn and they accept this. And they're baptized. And boom, the new body of Christ. Boom, the people of God begin to grow and take shape and take form. And we see here described in verses 42 through 47 what is going on with these new people. What's happening? What is it that they're on about? What are they doing? Now, oftentimes we'll read this and we'll look at it and think, okay, so we've got to look exactly like this. It's got to be exactly like this. Now Calvin, John Calvin, in his commentary about this passage, actually says that these are identifying marks of what a church should be on about. And so do your best, he says, to find a church that is doing these things. So what are they? Because we're a gathering of people who love Jesus and are loved by Jesus. 
We're gathering people that God has called together. We are his people. We are his body. That means we are his church. So what does it look like for even us to be a devoted fellowship? Well, right off the bat there in verse 42, we see four things that they're on about. Four big things that they're on about. It says they devoted themselves. Now, just real quickly, that word devoted is a really important word for us to understand. It means that they were all in. <laughs> like it wasn't just halfway. It was as if they, there was nothing else. They were in the center of it. Okay? So it's the most important thing in their life. These things they felt like they needed to do. Here they've been transformed. Here they've moved from death to life, from darkness to light, from orphanhood to sonship to childhood with being sons and daughters of God. And what is it they need to be on about? What do they need to be all in for? And the first one is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, they, many of them had just heard it, right, in Peter's sermon. They had just heard him proclaim who Jesus was and what he would do. What? Do you mind if I read it to you? Peter's sermon. He's standing up and he's speaking and he quotes from the book of Joel. And he says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit. This is what was going on. He wanted, uh, they wanted him to know this. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood and before the day of the Lord comes in the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So all these men and women who are standing around they've heard this before because they're all there because they're either born Jews or they're converted to Judaism and so they know that passage and Peter says this men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested to you, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you make, my full, make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us even to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from him the Father, that promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured it out, this to you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you crucified. Now when they had heard this, it cut to their hearts and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. What? are the apostles' teachings. It is this very thing, that you were lost and broken and unwhole, that you were a slave and dead and in darkness, but Christ, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, has come to break the chains of death, has come to bring light into our lives, has come to be the one who brings us back into whole relationship with God and with ourselves, with each other, and with place. And where do we find that story? Where do we find that? It's in His Word. And so when today we say we need to be devoted in the apostles' teachings... What we're speaking of is His Word, the full counsel of God that is here. Not, not just the New Testament, but the Old and the New Testament. Why do we say that? Well, because we see, even at the very beginning, Peter going back and showing us how the Old Testament reveals to us who Christ is, tells us who Christ is. Is And so we can't just abandon that and say, we're just New Testament Christians. How many of you know sometimes the restoration movement, the churches of Christ, that's what they say. We're New Testament Christians. We don't operate that way, but it's something we've said. We take the whole counsel of God and we move forward in that. So first, the apostles' teaching. The second thing is fellowship. Now that word fellowship is koinonia is the Greek word. I don't often spout out Greek words here. But koinonia is a, a, an important word for us. It reminds us again, it's very much like that word devoted. It is all in. It is everything in common. And so it's not just fellowship like what we'll have later at tea time. Where we sit down and we talk and sort of sometimes things go deep and sometimes they don't. And... We say, hi, and how are you going, and things doing okay, good, don't really tell me, not sure I want to know. Right? That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is we have all things in common, that everything is about who we are, that our whole identity and our whole being is recognized in the people that we see, not just in ourselves individually. So they, and we see how this works out a little bit later on in this passage. So first the apostles' teaching and then fellowship. And then it says the breaking of bread. Now, there can be some discussion about what this breaking of bread is. 
It could be just them having meals together, that they like to eat together. I love to eat. I also love to eat with people. That's always fun. That could be what he's talking about there. It also could be that they're talking about the Lord's Supper here, this breaking of bread, what communion is, that they devoted themselves to that. I will say, I think probably Luke here, who's writing the book of Acts, is giving us a both and, not an either or, for two reasons. One, when we look back in Luke's gospel, when he is telling us about Christ instituting the Lord's Supper, he uses the exact same word that he uses here for breaking of bread. So it's the same word. So there's sort of an, uh, uh, we can go back to what Luke was saying there and bring it forward and say, yeah, that's probably what it is. At the same time, the practice of folks eating together usually had wine and bread at dinner. And since Jesus has said, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me, it could be that the, the history is that they would always end every meal with the Lord's Supper together. And so whether it's just them eating together whether it's just separate of the Lord's Supper that he's talking about here, I can definitely say that it is the Lord's Supper in here. That that's what he's speaking of. That Jesus instituted this. He said, this is how you'll proclaim and remember who I am. And so this table that we have, this is not just frivolous. This is not something that we just need to set aside and do uh, sort of out of um, tradition. It's something that we're devoted to. Why? Because in it, it reminds us of what the gospel is. In it, it reminds us of who we are and how we're placed into Christ. It reminds us that it's his death and his resurrection that gives us the power to live in whole relationship with God and with ourselves and with others and with place. And so we long for that and we move towards that. And so we should anticipate with excitement taking this meal. We should look at it and gain grace and refreshment from it. So the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayer. Uh, this prayer here is, in, if you notice, it's in a plural, prayers. Now that could mean that they were talking about the public prayers that happened in the temple as they were all together and everybody's praying. It could also mean private prayers that you're praying more than once, not just one prayer. Probably a little bit of both and as well. And so that we have to be people of prayer, calling out. And not just calling out, prayers are about listening as well. Going to the apostles' teaching, going to the word of God and letting it speak to us to inform us of how our relationship with God is and communicating back and forth and allowing him to speak to us through his word. And so here we see and unpack in just one little small verse four things that identify what it means to be a devoted fellowship, what it means to be a devoted people to God. But what does it do? Uh, we're practical people, right? Like that's all good and fine, but what does it do? Well, I think it produces some things for us, five things, four things actually. For us, The first thing that it'll produce is it'll produce worship. 
When we're devoted to these things, it produces us to live a life of awe and fear. What does it say there? And awe or fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What we see happening is that there is worship that takes place. As they are hearing the apostles' teaching, as they are fellowshipping together, as they are taking communion and celebrating meals together, and they are praying, they can't help but come into a place of awe and worship. And look what's happening there when it says signs and wonders that the apostles are doing. They are restoring God's original intention. Do you understand? A lot of times when we think about miracles, we think of them like a magic trick, right? Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. That's not what miracles were about. When God is doing miracles, what he's doing is restoring to right order. Now, he's doing it supernaturally. He's bringing in his spirit and his self into it. But it's not like it's something to just make you go, whoa, what is that on about? Although that should happen. But it is restoring to right order. So when someone is dying and somebody is sick and Jesus heals them, what is the right order that God intended for us to have life? Right? So he's bringing about right order. In that, So when we hear about these signs and wonders that the apostles are doing, it's not to bring glory to themselves, right? But it's to bring glory to God by bringing right order. In our worship, it brings us into right order. It reminds us of who we are and it reminds us of who God is and it brings us into the right relationship, the whole relationship with him. So the first thing that it produces is worship. The second thing that it produces is care. When we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, it brings about care. Look what happens here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. You see, the Spirit was working together. They were not necessarily saying, take away your private property and sell it all and then give. What they're saying is, as those who had need, there were those who would step up and say, you have need. I have want. I have more. Let me give to you. Let me care for you in this way. Now, sometimes what has happened with this passage is people will go, oh, see, that's the beginning of communism. Socialism, right there. Jesus was a communist. That's not what's happening here. Some would even, look, this is way beyond communism. Here's the reason why. Communism and socialism, when they are implemented out as a philosophy, have to be driven by someone above making everyone else do it. Saying, we're going to gather all our stuff together. Don't look at mine. We're going to gather all our stuff together. Please don't look at mine. We're going to gather all our stuff together, and then we're going to distribute it. Okay? What's happening here is the Spirit is moving. They can't help but see the need and saying, I've got more. Let me give to you. Pure care for one another. Now, the flip side is this. It's also not setting out for us a sanctified capitalism. 
It's not saying, well, God's got to bless me so that I can bless other people. Because what tends to come right after that is when I feel like it. Or I think that is a worthy need. So it's not about an either or here. It's not, <laughs> it's not saying, yeah, you have your stuff. And when you feel led, go ahead and give. It shifted their mindsets when they were listening to the apostles' teaching, when they were devoted to it, devoted to fellowship with one another, devoted to Christ's death and resurrection through the breaking of bread and communion, and devoted to prayer. It changed their hearts and minds that they never saw their possessions as anything that they possessed. They saw them as the things that God allows them to release in order to maintain their life and live a generous life to all those who are around as they had need. It's a beautiful thing. But it all springs from being committed and devoted to those four things. Because that's where it comes from. It produces for us care. So it produces worship, it produces care, and then it produces celebration. What do we see happen? It says, and day by day, attending to the temple together and then breaking breads in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Um, I, I, I'm a big proponent of gatherings. I'm a big proponent of our gathering here and saying we need to be gathering together to worship, to be devoted to these things. I, I believe we should be gathering together in our homes. I believe we should be gathering together in restaurants. I believe we need to be gathering together in, uh, on street corners. I believe we need to be gathering together as the people of God. We're together together. And when we do, it should bring about celebration. Why? Because we're saved and we are brought to life. And so this is what's happening here with them. They didn't forsake going to the temple. They still went to the temple. It says day by day, every day for them, they went to the temple. So all these 3,000 would go to the temple, or more by that point, would go to the temple. But they would also meet in their homes together and break bread. And they would receive it with generous and glad hearts. They couldn't help but celebrate the good things that God had given to them. Again, because they didn't see them as their own anymore. They had been utterly transformed, moved from being devoted to self only, but being devoted to the fellowship of who God was. So as Hebrews reminds us, don't fall into the practice of neglecting the gathering together as some have done. We should gather together on Sundays. That's what we've chosen to do. Together to celebrate and worship and be filled with all, and to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, and to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship, and to prayer. But that's not the only place. We should be gathering together all the time, in all sorts of areas of our lives, with those who are following Christ and those who are not. Why? Here's the, second thing, the last thing that it produces. Because what we see happening when we're devoted to these things, when it produces for us worship and care and celebration, it produces anticipation of change.
They gathered together, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is a sense of anticipation that is going on in this little devoted fellowship. It's anticipation within it because what they're seeing is God keeps adding to their number. Things are happening. Who's God going to add today? What's going to happen? Who's going to come knock on our door and say, can I come and join you guys and break bread? Who are they going to encounter on the streets that's going to go, oh, you're part of that group over there. What's going on? What's happening? They anticipated that that would happen. Why? Because they saw God adding to their number daily. But it's not just anticipation on their part. It's anticipation on the outsiders' parts. They were seeing and were giving favor to what was going on. Why? Because they liked what was happening. They saw what was going on. They saw how they were caring for each other. They saw how they were moving differently than most Roman citizens and most Jewish citizens. As a matter of fact, they were probably starting to see a little bit of creeping in of ethnic uh, diversity. And wondering, what is really going on there? There's people from North Africa, and there's people from Israel, and there's people from Rome that have all converted to Judaism, but now all of a sudden they're talking about this Jesus and how he's changed their lives and changed them, and they can't get enough of him, and they can't get enough of each other, and that's just strange, and they care for one another. What's going to happen next? See, when we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and we are devoted to prayer, it produces anticipation that God is doing something. So we don't sit back. We sit up on the edge of our seats, waiting to see what God will do. Francis Schaeffer was another theologian that I really like to read. And in a book that he wrote called The Church at the End of the 20th Century, he said this, about the church. He said, unless people see in our church not only the preaching of the truth, but the practice of the truth, the practice of love, and the practice of beauty, unless they see that thing that humanist, let me define that word, what he's saying there is the world, people who aren't thinking through the lens of a gospel-centered life, people who are not thinking through what it means to be in relationship with God, with myself, with others in place, but are thinking of themselves and how it affects them. Unless they see that the thing that the humanist rightly wants, love, truth, beauty, what they rightly want but cannot achieve on their humanist base, on their worldly, on their, on their humanly strength. If they are able then to see it being practiced in our communities, if they can't find it here in the church, he says, then let me be clear. They will not listen. Okay? And they shouldn't. Wow. They found favor among people because they had the answer to the longing of their hearts. 
those of us who are gathered together here, who are following after Christ, do you, do I really believe that I have the answer to the longing of the world's heart? Then if I do, I will be devoted to the things that will produce anticipation and care and celebration and worship and ultimately conversion of those moving from where they are wrong, where they are broken, where they are hopeless, into a place where they are whole and in truth and healed. And so are we devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, both individually and as a group. But if you're like me, you're a little bit of a cynic. <laughs> and you think to yourself, that's all good and fine, Lee. That's great. And there's lots of uh, uh, folks out there who have said, we're going to pattern our church just after these things. We're going to do exactly what they did. And, and we sit back and we go, that's very idealistic of you. Because if you keep reading in the book of Acts, then what we recognize is that all of a sudden they weren't finding favor anymore. As a matter of fact, they got persecuted. That, that's very good of you to be idealistic and want to move in there. But what we recognize is that this sharing everything in common, all of a sudden we've got liars and dyers. Ananias and Sapphira come in and they say, we sold everything that we had to give to everybody in the poor. And they said, that's not true. As a matter of fact, this unity that they seem to have, this, this gathering together and fellowship, we get to Acts 15 and we see there's a huge division in the church and trying to decide how do we let these Gentiles in and how do we keep them out and what do they need to do to actually be saved. There's a controversy that spreads out and it really dogs Paul through the rest of his ministry. Very idealistic. Let's make our church an Acts 2.42 church. Well, let me give you some words that maybe help us. I think that we need to look at these things as aspirationally. These are the things that we know we need to be devoted to. That within these things, we aspire to be completely devoted to these things. And we know that our fellowship will break. And we'll know that sometimes uh, there is things that happen in the broader church that don't align with the apostles' teaching Completely, and, and we recognize that there will be divisions within our body. But we want to aspire to be this type of devoted fellowship. The second thing is I think we have to think strategically about it. I think we have to look at it and go, if these are the things that are the marks of the church that show us what a church, a gathering of God's people should be on about, then how do we strategically make sure the things that we're doing match up with it? Are the things that we're doing about the apostles' teaching? Are they about true fellowship? Are they about the Lord's Supper and holding it forth? Are they about... So I think strategically we look at it and say, if something's not doing those things then maybe we don't need to do them anymore. So I think we also need to look at it not just aspirationally or strategically, we have to look at it practically. This is a different time and a different place and a different country. Practically, the way these things work out 
here in Fremantle in our gathering are going to look different than the way that they worked out those years ago. They're going to look different than the way they worked out even here a hundred years ago, 50 years ago. Why? Because things change and people move and there's different influences that come in and we have to recognize practically this is what it means. We're limited by budget. We're limited by building. We're limited by space. We're limited by people. So what does it mean for us to be devoted to these things? We're overwhelmed by need. We're overwhelmed by concern. What does it mean for us to meet those things? So I think practically when we look at it, we say, well, hopefully we want to always be preaching the word of God. We always want to be about the Lord's Supper on Sunday. We want to make sure that our tea time is not the only time that we're gathering together to be in each other's lives. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have gatherings that take place other times. We want to make sure that we uplift and we support our mercy ministries, that John 21, that takes place on Saturday. That we want to make sure that as we grow as a body that we have good, a good diaconate who's being able to care for the community and out. And not just them, but all of us working together in that. We want to say practically that we want to make sure everybody who comes in to our gathering feels welcome. That they know that they belong here even before they believe. Why? Because we want to sit in anticipation, right? That God's doing something. Because he is. And so I believe that we're not idealistic when we look at this as a pattern of what we need to do. But we're actually being aspirational and we're being strategic and we're going to be practical about it. But catch this. This devoted fellowship is the reality of who we are as a gathering. No matter how screwed up, messed up, colored and foggy it looks from the outside to us. Because Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one who is leading it. And by being his body and his people, it is so that we are these that are devoted. And not only that, it is God who is doing it. So it doesn't matter how much we plan or how much we worry or how much we... Why? Because God is doing it. That's what it says to us there. Just remember this always. And the Lord to their number daily, those who are being saved. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray that these words will be your words, that they will not return void to you, but that in them they will grab hold of our heart and take root and bring glory and honor. If they are not your words, we pray that they will burn up and go away, that they will be no more in our mind so that they will not confuse us or bring us out of a line with your apostles' teaching to us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.